welcome to Nutrition Assessment. In this episode, we have the audio-only portion of class from Monday, October 25th, 2021. This one all about gastrointestinal assessment. So remember, you are what you absorb more so than you are what you eat. And if we're looking for dysfunction in the gastrointestinal tract, then we're going to need one or more of the assessments that we talk about in this um, episode. Now here again, most of these assessments will be performed by other members of the healthcare team, but you as the dietitian definitely need to understand what these tests are looking for and what the results may tell us. We are back in Graves Hall for lab this week, the usual room, although it feels like forever since we've been there because we skipped, skipped lab that week that we had um, fall break and we weren't there last week. Um, there are a lot of assignments due this week, but we're gonna skip over a lifelong learning this week because we're gonna have a mini case and all of those other assignments for the ABCD project. So a list of all of those assignments is up on um, the overview page for this week on Carmen slash you should be able to go to to do on Carmen and have a list everything that's coming up due Thursday much of which you guys got a good jump on last week during lab so good on you today's did you know comes from Beth thank you Beth so did you know that Roth IRAs are cool obviously Beth did and in reading your um, personal learning network assignments several of you are actually very interested in personal finance so Beth brought up Roth IRAs since we were talking about older adult assessment last week and how if you want to age well, now is the time, and that includes saving money. Um, so uh, I have the definition of a Roth IRA from NerdWallet, which is one of my favorite uh, websites to go to. What's cool about a Roth IRA is that you can you invest your money after tax, and then when you take your money out, there'll be it'll be tax-free. But what's extra cool is you could take your money out before the age of 59 and a half for a variety of reasons. So for example, I opened up a Roth IRA once I got a diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome because you can use both the um, principal, what you've paid in, and the interest from a Roth IRA should you become disabled. So like that's sort of my, my way of doing disability insurance because ain't nobody going to pay for disability insurance for me at this point. Um, but you could use the money for buying your first house. Like there's lots of different ways, education expenses, or lots of different ways you can actually pull it back out if you want to. Um, so Beth is recommending Roth IRAs and the book Broke Millennial, which I have not read, but Beth has. So we'll take that as a, as a high endorsement. I will take student offered Did You Knows anytime. So if you have an idea for a Did You Know, do let me know. And then I'm gonna piggyback, ha ha, piggyback on Beth's recommendation and recommend that there is something called Scarlet and Gray Financial, which is peer financial counseling. So it's students counseling other students on finances. Um, so that's another cool thing that we have. Um, I think it's through the Student Wellness Center too, since financial wellness is an aspect of wellness as well. So save your pennies. Compound interest is the coolest thing. And thank you, Beth. All right gastrointestinal assessment <coughs> so this chunk this is another chunk of assessments where you the dietitian are not placing the scope you are not doing the percutaneous biopsy you are not doing the test right but you very much need to know what these tests are and what the results may mean for your patients in terms of what we can expect their GI system to be able to do so are there motility issues 
Are there absorption issues? Is there disease present? What's the degree or staging of the disease? Those are the types of things that we get from gastrointestinal assessment, which have a huge impact on your patient's nutritional status, which is your role, right? That is your job. So as we go through GI assessment, I do have to start with a uh, shout out to another favorite webcomic of mine. Anyone familiar with The Awkward Yeti? Oh, are you in for a treat? So check out The Awkward Yeti. The, uh, the author or the artist for this comic um, started with The Awkward Yeti, who's over there in blue, and then sort of did like a sub-series of the comics focusing just on heart and brain, and then has expanded out to other organs of the body. I don't know this artist's background. I keep saying I'm gonna look it up, but he's got a pretty good understanding of anatomy and physiology. And so there's all kinds of comics about the different organs of the body. And so this is his digestion comic, which is, which is pretty good, actually. You have the teeth and the, the tongue working on grinding and moving the food from the mouth and into the esophagus. You have the stomach just churning out acid, right? And then the pancreas and the liver are adding in their secretions with the gallbladder in green holding off to the side, holding the extra bile. It's the gallbladder's job. There's a whole gallbladder comic where he says, I make these because he made gallstones. It's really cute, just saying. Uh, the liver's a little cranky, the way this guy drives, draws him, but that's all right. Colon is always cranky, always. Um, you guys know Dr. Roberts, right? Dr. Roberts has a coffee cup with the colon on it, this cartoon colon, and it just says, soon. And I love that, and she walks into any meeting with anyone ever with that cup, and I respect the hell out of it. It's hilarious. So this is actually a pretty good, pretty good depiction, though, right, of the GI tract. We think of it as one long tube, and it is. It is one long tube, but we have the accessory organs that are contributing as well that we want to assess. And even though it is one continuous tube, there are distinct sections to it. And so each section has its own function, which means it can have its own dysfunction and its own disease. So, starting at the top, <clears throat> mouth. If you're doing GI assessment, you actually do need to look at the patient's mouth. If the patient's unable to put food in their mouth, that's gonna have a pretty serious impact on what they're able to eat and what their nutrition status is. So, things that can alter your ability and or willingness to eat would be things like um, any damage to the lips, or I believe it's pronounced colitis, colitis. Um, this is a picture of angular chelitis. This is um, basically just a, in this case, it could be like a thrush or a fungal infection, but it's dry, cracking, painful on the lips, and it can make your lips, it can make it very difficult actually to open your mouth, and if you don't want to open your mouth, then that's going to limit how much food you're going to eat. You want to check for dentition. If the person has ill-fitting dentures or is missing their dentures, then they're going to have a very difficult time chewing. The health of the gums and gingiva makes a difference. If a person has a mouth full of um, sores, cold sores, or canker sores, that can be exceedingly painful, and that can happen for immunocompromised patients, particularly cancer patients. So if you have a mouth full of sores, and I'm coming in telling you to eat more, you're going to look at me like I have three heads because you don't want to eat anything. It hurts too much. The tongue plays a huge role in how we... Um, chew and swallow food, but also in how we taste food. So if the patient is experiencing altered taste or dysgusia, then they're not going to want to eat. And that is very, very common in a lot of cancer patients based on the type of chemotherapy that they're receiving. 
Um, and so if food doesn't taste right, you just don't want to eat it. Um, the tongue, again, very important for moving food around. The next time you chew and swallow something, notice how much work your tongue is doing. It's doing a lot of work. So if you have any alteration of the ability of the tongue or, heaven help me, you have oral cancer and you've lost part of your tongue, that makes a big difference in terms of what you are able to eat. Glossitis is inflammation of the tongue. This can be caused by a variety of um, micronutrient deficiencies. Or if you drank something really, really hot and you burned your tongue, that could cause glossitis. Um, so anything that damages the tongue. Glossitis is often a symptom of other conditions. <clears throat> it could be due to allergic reactions. It could be due to a micronutrient deficiency. Basically, it's going to tell us we need to look for more. Xerostomia is the big fancy word for dry mouth, so it means a lack of saliva. There are three pairs of salivary glands. There's the sublingual, parotid, and submandibular. So you have six salivary glands that should be pumping out saliva, but any, there's any of a number of injuries, not injuries, disease states that can alter your production of saliva. Sjogren's syndrome comes to mind. Sjogren's syndrome is one that is an autoimmune disorder that actually attacks the um, salivary glands along with other exocrine glands in the body. So you end up with dry mouth. Older adults can have dry mouth, right? They have that altered sense of, of thirst, but as well they can have dry mouth. And just about any medication you see on TV ever, right, has in their, their minute-long diatribe of all the side effects of the medication, dry mouth is always listed, right? So there are medications that can cause dry mouth as well. Other things that can affect the mouth, any type of irritant like tobacco, alcohol, hot foods, spices, other irritants, um, lots and lots of things that can basically mess up your mouth. In lab this week, we're going to um, experiment with thickened liquids and talk about strategies you can use if someone has um, damage to the mouth or needs some healing in that area. Um, once you do successfully swallow the food, it goes into your esophagus. So I'm going to sort of pull back. Fluoroscopy is the use of video and x-ray to examine something. It doesn't have to be the GI tract. In fact, you could use fluoroscopy looking at um, cardiovascular procedures. So a cardiac cath, right? Remember that one where you're looking at an image of the heart? That can use fluoroscopy where you add a contrast material and you're taking a continuous video. You could also use fluoroscopy if you are scoping a joint, so arthrography, looking into arthritis. Um, you could use it for lumbar puncture, placement of IV catheters. There's lots of ways you could use fluoroscopy. But what we're going to talk about specifically here is the use of um, barium-laced foods and beverages to um, track your ability to swallow. So barium x-rays or enemas, it could be a barium enema, to view the gastrointestinal tract. And so with that, a swallowing study is actually conducted by a speech pathologist and probably a radiation technologist. So it's not one that you, the dietitian, are going to do, but it's one that you, the dietitian, need to understand. Um, and let me make sure, yes, we do have audio. Okay, so let's watch, see if I can get this to come up. Let's see. Will you load? Here is an example of video fluoroscopic swallowing study starring the cutest kid ever. So here we go. 
<clears throat> thank you, Mayo Clinic, for using YouTube. So what they're going to do I'm is... I'm Harry from Speech Pathology. I'll be doing a video fluoroscopic swallow evaluation, looking at a patient's swallowing mechanism under x-ray. That. I'm just going to be taking some pictures of you. This is the camera that we use. It won't touch you. It won't hurt you. But it does make a difference. Your pictures are going to come up on the screen here. And for any pictures, it's important that you're really still and straight when you're taking them. There you are. Yep, I'm going to start with thin. Okay. All right, you ready? Okay, here we go. Good job. Good job, Scarlett. Can you take a few more of those for me? Others follow me. Good. Can you take two more? And then we'll go to something else. So let's do. There's one, one more. Oh, good job. Nice work. Did I put plenty of cherry flavor in there? Did I? I'm going to buy the applesauce. You want to do this? You want to hold it? Okay. Very nice. Can you do one more of those for me? Oh, very good. Nice work, Scarlett. You want to try a cookie? All right. All right, there you go. You can take a bite of that for me and chew that up. What you're seeing, if you can see up in the top where the x-ray is, anything that is dark is that barium-laced food or beverage, right? So the, the drink has barium in it, the applesauce has barium in it, and before she gave her the cookie, she dipped it in something that has barium in it as well. And so the speech pathologist is watching the video in real time looking for issues, and the radiation tech is right behind her taking, taking continuous video but also images to try to capture what's going on here. And so um, when you're doing this, you're looking to see where is the food or beverage going. So if you think of the anatomy of the neck, right, you have the esophagus, but you also have the epiglottis, right? And the epiglottis is going to come and close off the airway so that anything you swallow goes down the esophagus and into your stomach and not into the lungs. So we'll contrast that with, you can watch the whole thing. She stays cute the whole time. Contrast that with this video, which shows, if we watch it long enough, it shows this is actually an infant drinking. The JAMA Network. No joke, I was listening to this last night. I was like, Pajama Network? Yes, let's go to bed. So this one shows an infant, it's a neonate, drinking from a bottle. So you'll see very dark on the video the nipple of the bottle because it's full of barium laced milk. And then as the infant is swallowing, you can see the black liquid take two paths, right? It isn't actually black, but it appears black on the x-ray. 
you can see it go down where we want it to go down, and you can see it start to go into the lungs. So this is what we're looking for on a swallowing study. So again, what you're seeing up here, this is the mouth, that's the nipple of the bottle, this is the liquid. We want it to go down the back of the throat. You can't see it very well, but there's soft tissue. The epiglottis here should come up and close off the airway so that the liquid only goes down the back of the throat. But if you look down here, we have some, you can see like this light area in between. Some of the liquid is actually going down into the lungs instead of into the stomach, which is a problem, right? So if it's not safe for a patient to swallow foods and beverages, that makes some big changes in terms of what we're going to recommend for a patient to eat. So what we'll be doing in lab this week will actually be trying out some thickened liquids, right? So if you think about a bolus of food, once you've created that bolus of food and you swallow it, it stays together fairly well and can get over that epiglottis and into the stomach fairly easily. Whereas liquid, particularly thin liquids, can move and they can end up not where we want them. We, don't, we do not want to aspirate. We don't want food or beverages going into the lungs. But you could thicken liquids and make it more likely that they'll go where we want them to go. Although if that's not going to be enough, then you could look at things like tube feeds or um, peg tube or pedge tube. But we'll get to that. So fluoroscopy is anytime you're using x-ray and a contrast material to figure out what's going on. But very specifically, you could do a video fluoroscopic swallowing study to see is it safe to feed this person, right? Because the rule is if the gut works, we want to use it, right? But if we can't get food to the gut from the mouth, then we're going to have to move further down. So other imaging we can do, endoscopy. So endoscopy just means using a scope to get inside of the body. But there are a variety of terms you'll hear that tell you a little bit about where that scope is going. So upper endoscopy typically means upper GI. And we're looking at maybe just the very beginning of the small intestine and then the stomach and the esophagus. If you're doing a gastroscopy, that's looking specifically at the stomach. So you'd go down the esophagus and into the stomach. Whereas if you're doing esophagastroduodenoscopy or EGD, you're going through the esophagus, down to the stomach, and into the very beginning of the small intestine, the, du the duodenum. The fun part about talking about GI assessment is I have had so many of these tests myself that I have so many stories to tell. So I have had an EGD. What's nice about an EGD is they give you medicine that makes you not remember it at all. So with an EGD, you have to swallow the tube. You have to be alert enough to swallow the tube and then to move around if they need you to move. But you don't want to remember that. So they give you a drug such as Versed, right? What I remember from my EGD was that they wheeled me into the room, verified my name and date of birth, and said, all right, give her the Versed, and that's the last thing I remember. But I was still upright, I was still awake, and I swallowed the tube, which has a light and a camera on the end, and they're scoping to see what they can find. So the reasons you would do this, you would do this if the patient has abdominal pain, nausea or vomiting, swallowing difficulties, gastric reflux, unexplained weight loss, or you suspect bleeding in the upper GI tract. Um, in my case, I had a hiatal hernia, meaning the very top of the stomach, had I still have it, the very top of the stomach, the hiatus, was outpouching into the lower esophageal sphincter. So my lower esophageal sphincter doesn't close all the way, so I get heartburn, right? 
So they were able to diagnose that with um, an EGD. Anytime you're doing a scoping procedure, it could also become um, an opportunity to take a biopsy to sample tissue. So with a scope like this, if they'd found something that looked off, they could sample that tissue while they're there. The prep for this for the patient, they typically have to come in nothing by mouth or NPO, um, and you would be sedated. So in this case, I, I was alert at the time, um, but I don't remember it. The biggest thing probably for a procedure like this is someone else needs to drive you home because you can't do it. I gave my mom directions, but I had no business being behind the wheel. I'm also extremely grateful that this predated the least prevalence of smartphones. So there's no video of me being incredibly loopy after this procedure, because I was. So upper endoscopy is typically looking at the upper part of the GI tract. This video, we're gonna watch just a little bit of it to give you a sense of how this works. I skipped over the part where this is a TV anchor from somewhere I don't know where, talking about who might need an upper endoscopy, um, but now he's out, he's sedated, and now the doctor's gonna talk to us a little bit about this procedure. So this is the upper endoscope, and um, I can move up and down, left and right, with the knobs using my left thumb. Hang on, that was super loud on my end. I don't know about you. Come back. Yeah. I'm trying to. So this is the upper endoscope, and uh, not that far. Move up and down, left and right, with the knobs using my left thumb. And then we also have the ability, with a little hole in there, to put a device down, which you'll see, because I probably am going to take a biopsy um, of the stomach to look for bacteria. Now, the resolution of the scope is really quite remarkable. If we look just at the sheet, this is where it says New York Hospital here, you can see every thread in the sheet. It's a high-definition picture, very similar to the high-definition television sets. And um, if we look, for example, at John's hair, we could see every strand of hair with the endoscope. John, how you doing? Okay, I think we're ready to get started. All right, so he is gonna go into his throat and into his stomach. So if anyone does not feel comfortable with that, now's, now's your chance for an unrelated reason to get up and walk out of the room. It's totally fine, no judgment. Just wanna give you a heads up there. What? Come on, this is on YouTube. All right, John, you're gonna feel just a little tickle in the back here. That's the tongue. This little flap is called the epiglottis, and that's closing the airway from the uh, feeding tube. Yeah, okay, we're heading down. Just entered the esophagus. And the esophagus is covered by a lining called squamous mucosa, which is very similar to the lining on the skin. And then as we get further down, you'll see that lining changes. Now you see this? It's like a propagation of a wave heading down. That's the way food moves. This is the stomach now we're entering here. And some of this fluid, this is just some of the spray actually that I just put in. And John hasn't eaten since last night, so there should be no food in the stomach. Some people think these folds in the stomach, which are called rugae, remind them of the surface of the brain. And you know people who think with their stomachs? Well, now you can see, it actually looks a little brain-like. This is the small intestine here. 
Right, let's take a biopsy. Open. Close. The little bit of blood, by the way, is always normal. You're always going to see a little blood from a biopsy. Remember, everything's magnified. There's no real bleeding that's happening. It's just like if you were to prick your finger, there's going to be a little bit of blood at the site. So you can see I took one biopsy just above that Z-line, went a little higher. We're going to look for eosinophils, which is a marker of um, evidence of reflux. There's no sign whatsoever of Barrett's here. All right, so that's, we've taken our biopsies, and now we're just looking at the esophagus as we come back. He wanted me to show his vocal cords, which are here. That's the wind type. Okay, John, say ta-da, ta-da-da. There you go. Okay. All right. Okay, we're done with the upper endoscopy. Thank So he asked him to speak, right? And he was able to do it. He's alert enough to be able to do that. I guarantee you, though, once this is all said and done, he doesn't remember any of that. Drugs are weird and wonderful, right? So that's, that would be the upper endoscopy where, yeah, you need the patient alert so that if you need them to say something, swallow something, move in some way, they're able to do that. There's no video of mine, unfortunately, and definitely unfortunate there's no video of me after the fact being loopy as all get out. <clears throat> All right, enteroscopy. Enteroscopy is specifically looking at the small intestine. We're still talking about a scoping procedure, but now we're looking at problems with the small intestine, which could include hernias, ulcers, any type of digestive disorder or absorptive disorder, um, any type of malabsorption. This would require a full bowel prep. So when I said we're doing the upper endoscopy and you have to be nothing by mouth, that's typically nothing by mouth by 10 to 12 hours so that when you go to scope, everything is clear. You can see things like you saw in the video. For small bowel or large intestine, you need to do a bowel prep and literally clean everything out so that you can see what's going on down there. So a full bowel prep typically involves um, laxatives and a lot of fluid. We'll talk about that more when we get to um, colonoscopy. Reasons you would do an enteroscopy, it could be um, to diagnose celiac disease, looking, for unexplained di looking to explain diarrhea or GI bleeding. Um, basically, <clears throat> you remember with the small intestine, you expect to see those microvilli, those very small finger-like projections. If there's any alteration in that anatomy, that's gonna decrease your ability to absorb, and that could show up on a scope. While you're at it, you can do something called endoscopic retrograde choleangiopancreatography, which is basically an upper GI with x-rays. <clears throat> so I talked about how we're going to scope the GI tract, but there's also accessory organs. Getting to the accessory organs is a lot more difficult because they're not, strictly speaking, part of the GI tract. But this is an example of how you could actually assess bile and the pancreatic ducts by using um, that contrast material with x-rays and that upper GI scope to look to see if you can find gallstones that have actually dislodged from the gallbladder and are now stuck in the common bile duct. You could look for infection. You could look to diagnose acute or chronic pancreatitis. Um, complications um, from surgery. So I actually had my gallbladder removed and I still had pain. 
So they talked about doing this type of test on me to try and figure out why I still had pain after my gallbladder was removed. You can look for um, pancreatic pseudocysts and for tumors or cancers of the bile ducts or pancreas. So again, this one would require that contrast material like you saw on the video fluoroscopic study. Um, and the patient does need to be NPO for the prep. Colonoscopy, colonoscopy is a very well-known one. So colonoscopy is the same idea. We're using a scope, but we're starting at the other end. You do not start at the mouth to look at the colon. You start at the anus to look at the colon. So this can show swollen tissue, ulcers, polyps, and cancer. Polyps can be precancerous. So the, nice, the advantage of a colonoscopy is, as you saw in the video, you can do a biopsy during the procedure. You could remove polyps or you could biopsy tissue to look for cancer. Indications for this, if you have unexplained bleeding, changes in bowel activity, abdominal pain in your abdomen. Wow. When did I put that together? Where else would abdominal pain be, Sarah? When? <laughs> oh, it was, a, it was a short night last night. Unexplained weight loss and, again, screening for colon cancer. Has anyone had a colonoscopy? This is one test I have not done. Is it fun? No. What is not fun about a colonoscopy? The prep. The prep? Yeah. yeah. How's the procedure? Not good, not good. Okay, so the prep is awful, but you don't remember it. What about, what do you think? The prep is brutal from what I've heard, right? And they've lowered the age that we now recommend that people start getting routine colonoscopies at age 45. So I'm getting there. I'm getting close. But yes, the, the drugs are wonderful. You don't really remember the procedure itself, but the prep is a full day of bowel prep of drinking clear liquids or a purgative or um, taking laxatives and drinking. My parents have had, between the two of them, lots of colonoscopies. And I swear it's a different prep every time. The piece that's consistent is they do not want you drinking any clear liquids that are red, right? They don't want anything showing up that might look like blood when they do the colonoscopy, unless it actually is blood, right? So <clears throat> lots of reasons to do a colonoscopy. Does anyone know who Katie Couric is? Okay, good. So there's a video posted on Carmen. Her husband died of colon cancer when he was fairly young, actually. And so it became a thing for her every year on the Today Show to do a colonoscopy on morning television. So there is a video of her doing her annual colonoscopy for the Today Show in full hair and makeup, as one does, right? That's not how anyone else goes to a colonoscopy, but Katie Couric can do it that way. So that video is up there if you'd like to see. It, there's not much to see. It's very similar to the video that you saw of the patient being a little loopy, right? And then the doctor doing their thing. So routine colonoscopy, they actually lowered the age for this last year. They lowered it from 50 to 45. So I got a few more years left. Also, when looking at the colon, you could be looking for diverticulitis or diverticulosis. So diverticulosis is outpouching of the colon. It's, it's pieces of the colon creating little pouches. And should those pouches become inflamed and or infected, that would be diverticulitis. So... While you are not going to be the one doing the colonoscopy, unless you want to go to med school and, and get into that sort of thing, you would need to be able to work from the results. So if a patient has diverticulitis, what is your diet assessment or your diet recommendation in that case? What do you know about diverticulitis? 
my very first day teaching this class, four years ago, I had spent the night in the emergency department with my dad with diverticulitis. The entire night in the emergency department. Got home, took a shower, uh, got in bed for like 30 minutes, and then got back up and came to work because what are you, you going to do? So diverticulitis is when little tiny particles of food, so seeds or parts of a nut or um, a very small grain maybe, get stuck in those out pouches, in, that, in, that, in those um, diverticula, diverticula the, the pouches that are sticking out. And when it gets stuck and becomes infected, it's very, very painful. So my dad ended up in the emergency department with abdominal pain, and they did a variety of tests to try and diagnose what might be going on. So one of the things you'll see with GI assessment is there's a lot that can go wrong in a lot of different places. And saying my stomach hurts, <coughs> not nearly specific enough to figure out what's going on. So in this case, um, diet assessment is going to be, you know, avoiding, you actually want a low fiber diet for a while after an episode of diverticulitis. And you want to avoid things like small seeds or nuts and things that can get caught in those pouches and then eventually work the way up to a high fiber diet, right? Because fiber is going to decrease transit time in the colon, which is good. We want a, a reasonable, not too long transit time in the colon. And so you will eventually work them back up to a high fiber diet. So when this happened, my mom was like, what did he eat? And I was like, I don't, I don't know, mom. This <laughs> could have been anything. He hasn't had an episode since, thank goodness. You could also do imaging of the colon looking at the microbiome or the gut flora. <clears throat> I'm not imaging. You could do sampling of the colon. You could do a stool sample to look at the gut microbiome or flora. <coughs> Gracious. We've established with the colonoscopy, the worst part is the prep. There is something called computerized tomography colonography or using a CT scan. So remember, CT scan is using a lot of x-rays and a computer to put together a 3D image. That's called a virtual colonoscopy. The problem with a virtual colonoscopy is you still have to do the prep. So if we've established that the prep is the worst part, this doesn't help you out there. All this does is instead of having the scope, you are in the CT tube as they take images. There's no anesthesia. You can be awake the whole time. But you also can't remove polyps, you can't take a biopsy, you can't sample anything because you're not actually in the body while you're doing this procedure. And it's not as effective. So while this is an option, um, it's, not as, it's not as effective and it's um, not, if the prep is the worst part, you still got to do that part, right? So this is not as commonly done, but it is an option. Other endoscopic procedures. A sigmoidoscopy is only going in so far as the sigmoid part of the colon. You could do this if you're looking for bowel obstruction or in the case of diarrhea or unexplained blood mucus or pus in stool. Cancer or familial adamatous polyposis. So familial adamatous polyposis is a genetic disorder in which you have greater than 100 polyps after the first decade of life. And again, those polyps are precancerous. So people who have FAP have a very, very high incidence of colon cancer. So if you know you have a family history of FAP, then you really need to get colon colonoscopies on a very regular basis. 
Something like a sigmoidoscopy, you can use a flexible tube and it does not require sedation, but you would still need to do at least some bowel prep. It might just be enemas in this case, but you would need to do bowel prep just the same. And this image is showing polyps. So <clears throat> diverticula are out pouches, polyps are sort of more coming in. So you can see the distinction there. I found a picture after I saved your slides to Carmen, but capsule endoscopy, this is a thing. So you can swallow a capsule that is roughly the size of a large vitamin that has a camera inside of it, right? So you may still have to do all the prep, the bowel prep, but instead of having the scope put down into you, you can swallow a pill. And that pill will take pictures and radio those pictures back out to the sensor while it is inside your body. So a capsule endoscopy does require a full prep, but no sedation. You just swallow the capsule. Depending on what time of day your appointment is, you might just stay at the hospital all day. You might be able to go home and do your normal activities. Um, but you're never, ever, ever gonna do this for diverticulosis, right? If you have pouches in your colon where small things can get stuck, you are not going to give someone a capsule with a camera on it and say, good luck. Right? This does need to be pooped out at the end. You don't want it getting stuck in the middle. You could use it to look at GI bleeding. Um, you could look to see if GI bleeding is the cause of an iron deficiency anemia. Intestinal malabsorption, again, looking for FAP, Crohn's disease, or celiac disease. The trick with this one, too, is that capsule endoscopy may or may not be covered by your insurance because it is more expensive than an upper GI or a colonoscopy. Right? It is a pretty cool capsule, though. It's got the picture there. About the size of a dime. Do not swallow a dime, though. Bad idea. All right, I keep saying biopsy. Biopsy is taking a sample of any tissue of the body. It does not have to be in the GI tract. Anywhere in the body that you have any kind of tissue, you could take a sample of that, and that's called a biopsy. And that's done to diagnose diseases that cannot be diagnosed with blood or imaging tests or to estimate the degree of damage or staging if we're looking at a cancer or if you're looking at liver or kidney damage. And it can also be used to help determine the best treatment for a disease or for pre-existing damage. So biopsy, if it's part of a scoping procedure, you saw that in the video, they can just go ahead and sample it while they are completing the scope. So it could be in the esophagus, the stomach, the small or large intestine. The accessory organs of digestion, though, you can't reach those from the GI tract. So in those cases, you need a percutaneous biopsy, meaning you're going through the skin. That's a separate procedure. Um, it would be an, maybe an outpatient procedure, most likely, you know, in and out that same day. But you could do this to look at the liver or kidney. The kidneys are towards the back of the body. So I think this image here is showing you a patient laying on their stomach while the kidneys are being biopsied. So a small piece of tissue can be biopsied, but you gotta go through the whole body to get to it. Other ways to assess those accessory organs of digestion, any type of imaging study can be used. You could use a CT scan, you can use an MRI. Ultrasound is an option. <clears throat> when I had my gallbladder taken out, I had an ultrasound of my um, gallbladder prior to, actually it was an abdominal ultrasound. They looked at the kidneys, they looked at the gallbladder, they looked at everything, trying to figure out what was wrong. That was before we knew what was wrong. The technician who's taking the test can't tell you what's wrong. 
But when the technician looks at you and says, have you had surgery on your gallbladder before? And you say no, and they just say, hmm. Like, they saw something, right? They knew something was up, but they, won't, they can't tell you anything because it's not their job to interpret it. In my case, my gallbladder was contracted and full of stones. So it had gotten infected and contracted back down on top of, full of stones, which is why it hurt so much. Whereas my mom, when she had her, her gallbladder out, they did an MRI and they didn't really see anything. So they actually did exploratory surgery to try and figure out what was wrong. The reason they didn't see anything is her gallbladder was full of stone. It was the size of a Cadbury egg. They put it in a tube and brought it to her so she could see it. It was one gigantic stone. So they couldn't see that she had a gallbladder full of gallstones because it was one solid stone in her gallbladder. So there's lots of ways to get those accessory organs. You could use ultrasound, you could use MRI, you can use exploratory surgery and say, we're just gonna go in there and find out. They did go ahead and remove her gallbladder while they were at it. It was, it was a worthwhile procedure. Biopsy, obviously. Mentioned earlier that endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography um, is another way you can look at accessory organs. And then enzymes. So their presence or absence in the GI tract and or in blood samples can tell you a lot about the accessory organs as well. So not quite as straightforward to get to those, but we can still assess them. With the entirety of the GI tract, so as food moves from your mouth all the way down out through the anus, there is peristalsis happening, right? That squeezing and sort of twisting that happens to move food through. So if anything happens to your gut motility, your ability to move food through the gut, that can have a variety of um, bad effects, right? So if, you, if, you, if your food is not moving through the system, you'll have poor appetite. You will feel full all the time. So postprandial fullness is that feeling full after a meal. Bloating, nausea, vomiting, epigastric pain, so pain just a little bit higher up, just above the stomach, and early satiety. So motility disorders, disorders or diseases. Here are some examples. Achalasia, that first one, achalasia, that is the lower esophageal sphincter. So the very bottom of the esophagus going into the stomach. The lower esophageal sphincter refusing to open. Okay, I don't know why, but that's achalasia. So you can imagine the issues you'd have if after swallowing your food, it gets no further than the bottom of your esophagus, right? If it's not gonna get into your stomach, none of that digestion is going to happen, no absorption is going to happen. We're going to have some pretty serious nutritional issues there. Scleroderma, so I've had so many of these tests done because I have a connective tissue disorder and much of the GI tract is made up of connective tissue, right? Mine is too lax. Scleroderma is hardening of connective tissue. So if you can think of if your um, connective tissue around your stomach or around the small intestine became hardened or stiff, it's not going to move the way you need it to to be able to move food through. This can also cause swelling of the esophagus. Gastroesophageal esophageal reflux disease is that acid coming back up into the esophagus. I don't know if you caught in the video, it mentioned Barrett's esophagus. Barrett's esophagus is if you have untreated um, or un unmanaged or unmanageable, for that matter, acid reflux. Acid does not belong in the esophagus, right? And so it causes damage along that tissue and that can become precancerous as well, putting you at high risk of esophageal cancer. Gastroparesis is specifically the stomach not emptying. So um, I've got that. 
So gastroparesis, we've got a, it's on the next slide how you do assessment of that. Functional dyspepsia is a big fancy word for upset stomach. IBS is obviously irritable bowel syndrome. Colonic inertia would be constipation. And then fecal incontinence would be the opposite of that, um, not being able to control bowel movements. So having, having uncontrolled bowel movements, um, perhaps even before you get to the bathroom. So all of these are examples of motility dis disorders that we would need to study and try and figure out why there's a motility issue or where the motility issue is happening. Because you can see this would change how you're going to intervene, right? Where the problem is changes what the solution's gonna be. So gastric emptying study, there is another video on Carmen. This is another example of eating a meal with an isotope, a radioisotope, and then you stick around and you get x-rays at one, two, three, and four hours post eating that meal. In my experience, I arrived in PO and they had me eat some cold scrambled eggs and toast and a beverage that was then laced with the isotope. So they took images of my stomach empty, I ate the food, it was lousy. They took images again at one, two, three, and four hours. If more than 10% of the meal is still present after four hours, that is gastroparesis. I'd have to dig out my chart and figure out, it was more than 10%, but I don't remember what it was. Um, so I have gastroparesis. So for those of you keeping score, I have a hiatal hernia, uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease, and gastroparesis. You could also do a gastric emptying study with a breath test. So again, a meal with an isotope, and then you would sample the exhaled breath for the presence of that isotope. Because again, it should go through the stomach. It should not be coming back up um, and present in the breath as it's coming back up the esophagus. So the concentration of the isotope indicates the rate of gastric emptying in that case. But there's, just, there's a video of the imaging on Carmen. Manometry. Manometry is used to assess peristalsis and the accompanying pressure. So peristalsis is that squeezing, that moving of everything through the GI tract. And there's pressure that goes along with that, or there should be. And so manometry is basically assessing the pressure throughout the GI tract. So if we're talking about esophageal manometry, you're swallowing a tube that has pressure sensors in it. There's no sedation in this case because they're going to be asking you to swallow or maybe even eat something while you're swallowing, but you would get like a numbing spray or something to make that tube down the back of the throat a little less awkward. So you could do esophageal manometry. You'd also, you could look at the function of the lower esophageal sphincter in this case. If you're having swallowing difficulty or dysphagia, you could do this test. If you're having chest pain that is not cardiac chest pain, you could do this test. Um, heartburn, you can do this as well. You can also do anorectal manometry. This is a little bit different. In this case, you'd actually insert a catheter with a balloon on the end of the catheter that has pressure sensors in it, inflate that balloon, and then you would actually ask the patient to push or to bear down, like try to poop, basically, and try to assess the amount of pressure that is happening on that balloon. You could use this for looking at fecal incontinence and or constipation. In the case of the esophageal manometry, it would be coming um, nothing by mouth, so overnight fast. For the anorectal manometry, it's more likely going to be enemas or a more minimal prep than what you would have from a full bowel prep, um, but there would still be some preparation for the anorectal manometry. 
Speaking of uh, poop and pushing out poop, <clears throat> you can assess stool. You can assess someone's fecal matter for getting a sense of their nutrition status. So this is an example of a, uh, this is actually a flyer that was handed to me at Fency, the last time I went to Fency in 2016. Um, it's from Regular Girl Fiber Products, in case you're curious. But stool is composed, actually three quarters of stool is just water. So despite the fact that the colon does a lot of reabsorbing of water for us, thank goodness, most of stool is also water. The rest of it is bacteria, fat, inorganic matter, protein, and undigested roughage. Also your intestinal cells slough off as part of poop. And it should look like a three or a four. So type three is looks like corn on the cob or sausage with surface cracks. Four is shaped like a snake, has a smooth, soft surface. If you are outside of that range, if you're at a one or a two, you're looking at possible constipation. It's dry and it's hard, right? Or if you're a five, six, or seven, this is more like diarrhea. So it is actually, we talked about urine samples. You look at the color, the clarity. You can look at poop samples too. And you're looking at the shape, the consistency, also the color in some cases. You could also be looking for the presence of certain bacteria or parasites. So Clostridium difficile or C. diff would be a bacteria you could be looking for. If you have blood in stool, if there is blood in the stool, it's important to distinguish whether it is bright red or whether it is dark and tar-like because that tells you something about where the bleed is happening. If it is bright red, it is closer to the anus. It hasn't had a chance to be digested or worked on by the body. Whereas if it is a dark or tarry, right, then it could look more, it, it, it could be the bleed is further up somewhere that the body is actually acting on those blood products and trying to digest them. Um, which reminds me, I didn't put it in here, coffee ground emesis. <clears throat> Has anyone ever thrown up blood before? I've done it. So after having wisdom teeth out, I had a lot of blood going down my throat and into my stomach, and my stomach did not like that. If you vomit and it looks like coffee grounds, right, it's called coffee ground emesis, that's evidence of blood in the stomach. So that's another thing you could assess visually. Other end, obviously. Oh, the things we talk about at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Monday morning. <clears throat> celiac assessment. <clears throat> so we're getting very specific here. Celiac disease is one that we could spend the rest of the semester slash the entire semester talking about celiac disease, its assessment, the treatment, and specific issues like with kids. Um, it's, it's a very, very interesting disorder. I say that. It's not an easy one to manage. When you're testing for celiac disease, I mentioned all these different scoping procedures. Yes, you could use those scopes to look for that flattened or that smooth microvilli because that shows you have damage to the small intestine. But the best test is actually to look at immunoglobulin A and immunoglobulin A TTG. So the reason you look specifically at those is that if you have an elevated immunoglobulin A TTG but a deficiency of immunoglobulin A, then the deficiency could mask the fact that the IgA TTG is elevated. So if you're positive for IgA and IgA TTG, you would then follow up with a biopsy to confirm diagnosis of celiac disease. Celiac disease, as you know, is an autoimmune disorder in which you're responding to, you're attacking your own tissue in the presence of gluten. So the only treatment we have as of now for celiac disease is total avoidance of gluten. And so that's where you step in as a dietitian to help explain to patients 
which foods will have gluten in them, including lots and lots of foods you might not expect, and that there's no such thing as too much gluten. I cannot tell you how many friends and acquaintances I've encountered who are like, well, I have celiac, but if I eat just a little bit of gluten, I'm okay. No, you're not. Right. Any amount of gluten is going to trigger a response. The response might not happen for six to eight weeks after you eat the offending food, but it is going to trigger a response. So <clears throat> the trick with celiac disease, you actually have to be diagnosed while you're still consuming a gluten-containing diet because the treatment for celiac disease is total avoidance of gluten, and if you successfully totally avoid gluten for at least, say, four weeks, your gut could heal. And then you would look for this and not find it, and you would miss a diagnosis of celiac disease. That said, it's really, really hard to follow a gluten-free diet well. It can be done, but it's hard to do. So you do need to actually be consuming gluten when you are tested to diagnose. Last slide here. This is not an assessment. But since we're talking about the GI tract and how you can have dysfunction in different parts of the GI tract and then your interventions are going to be different, I did want to mention some surgical procedures that you should be aware of. So gastrostomy, gastrostomy is, so any ostomy is creating a hole from the um, inside of your body to the outside of your body where there normally isn't one. So a gastrostomy would be take, creating a hole from the outside of your body into the stomach. The reasons you would do this would be to place a percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy tube or PEG tube, which you could then feed someone an enteral nutrition formula through a PEG tube. And the way they create the PEG tube hole is they do that endoscope with the light on the end of the camera, right? So the, the doctor puts the scope down in, finds, literally I watched this done, they find the light, you know you hold a flashlight up to your finger and it turns red? They find the lights on the outside of the body. They confirm with imaging that they're in the stomach, and that's where they put the hole in. And that way they know they're placing the peg tube into the stomach. So if you have swallowing issues, it's not safe for you to swallow, you have that achalasia, you might need a peg tube in that case. You could also have a jejunostomy, where it's placed directly into the jejunum. So if there's something wrong with the stomach on the first part of the small intestine, the duodenum, you could place it into the jejunum. You could also do a percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy with a jejunostomy extension. So the hole is actually into the stomach, but then there's a tube inside the body that continues all the way into the jejunum, where the, the, the formula is going to go. Gastric bypass, huge implications for absorption and digestion for foods. So there's a variety of different gastric bypass um, procedures that can be done. Also, um, other ostomies, an ileostomy, if someone has part of their colon or all of their colon, actually they have all of their colon resected or removed, say in the case of colon cancer, an ileostomy is creating a hole where you would then collect the contents of the small intestine in a bag. So you'd have an ostomy bag, you'd collect that and have to empty it. So you're no longer going to the bathroom for number two, but you are collecting it in a bag 24-7. Very manageable, but you need to watch for um, dehydration because so much of the water is reabsorbed in the colon and for micronutrient deficiencies. And then a colostomy would be if you were to resect maybe just the last part of the colon or just the sigmoid, just a smaller piece, right? So a colostomy bag is different from an ileostomy bag and has different implications for your patient in terms of risk of dehydration due to loss of fluid 
and risk of micronutrient deficiencies. So those are not assessments, but since we're in here talking about all of this, um, those are things you need to be aware of slash these things might happen after a patient is assessed for a disease, treated for a disease, and then this is the end result. 